My name's Mel Herbert, and he's Tom Wolfson. We're going to be talking about the cars, the batteries, the solar panel, the stock price, the man, the myth. We're going to be talking about everything Tesla. Why? Because we're... Talking. 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 Talking Tesla. Ever, ever come into this studio and start talking until I have the microphone on? Do you think you're the boss of me? I mean, what is the problem? Just because... You are the boss of me doesn't mean you get to be the boss of me. What was your question, Thomas? And why is the tone of this talking Tesla so I don't know, angry? because you just don't like me very much, and I don't really understand Mate, why. Can I go get a drink? I need a drink. And not of alcohol. I mean of caffeine. Would you like me to get you a Red Bull or a Diet Soda? I'll get my own, thank you. That's the sound of a caffeinated beverage without sugar. Oh, it's going to be good. Terrible. Terrible for you. You're a medical professional. Though I am a licensed healthcare provider in the state of California, the following information cannot be used as healthcare information. It should not be used to change your lifestyle. I simply read it on the internet. I also read that Kim Kardashian is really a nice person, and I believe that as well. Oh, you should funny. know better. This is an aside. I was just reading this article. Aside of Fascinating what? as an aside. Oh, as an aside. So that's something that's not pertinent to what we're talking about. It's another way of saying rat hole. We're about <laughs> to go down on rat hole. Um, I was just reading this article about which is, you know, better for you, worse for you, sugar or saccharin. Yeah. And this stock was doing this thing saying there's been a number of big studies on saccharin and uh, these sugar substitutes, yeah. and they can't find in humans, any evidence that they're bad for you. Now, if you give 100 million times a dose to rats, you can give them Parkinson's disease and stuff, but it's a really a very poor model. You're giving a huge amount. Right. But every study that looks at sugar yeah. shows it's bad for you. It's bad for you. So the premise of this article was since sugar is always bad for you in every study, but we can't find anything bad with the, the sugar substitutes right now, I think it's safer to drink the sugar substitutes. Interesting take on that. Interesting discussion. Right. But they also used to uh, – well, not used to, but for sure, like burning your hands was bad for you, right? Like if you touch something hot and you burned your hands. Where are you going with this? That was bad for you. And then back in the 50s – and I was looking through a book on uh, building barbecues in the 50s. Uh, they recommend getting yourself a nice pair of asbestos gloves. Okay. Right? So for sure, the burning of the skin was bad for you and remains bad for you to this day. And at the time, they didn't have any evidence that asbestos was bad for you. But let me ask you this. Would you go and buy a pair of asbestos gloves for working your barbecue today there, Dr. Bright guy? Uh, well, we can What's your on. point? <laughs> I, I still know. can't follow the because, logical flow. Because at that point, they hadn't proved asbestos was bad either. It's terrible. They just haven't proved it. That is weird. But if you live in that world, you can't go out of the house, you can't do anything because they might prove that breathing oxygen That's is bad for you. That's very true. But you can live without a diet soda. I am no. living proof. Uh, living proof of it. It's been, I don't even know, six or eight months now. And I feel spectacular. What's that sound? That's the sound of Diet Coke going into a glass before it goes into my gullet. Just when you thought last episode's rat hole was superfluous, 
It's already gotten 10 times worse. All right, let's do some listener mail. This is actually useful. From a perm Chohan. Let's just start over. He sent an email, subject of the email, hydrogen versus electric. I don't know if you people listened to that episode. I was potentially ranting a little bit. I thought I made myself very clear. I don't like hydrogen. I thought I came up with a lot of salient points why I don't like hydrogen. Uh, Now, Perm, he had a lot of other additional points that I had not considered but makes a lot of sense. And it's really talking about why hydrogen continues to be this sort of love child of the automobile industry. There were hydrogen cars way back in the day. I don't know if you knew that, but there were. These aren't the first. No, I yeah, didn't know that. Way, way back when, in the day. Which in day? In the early 1900s. There were hydrogen cars. Yes, there were electric there were. cars. There were gasoline cars. Well, what the, the hell happened in the last 100 years? Did we just go into a, the my, dark ages? There's a huge amount of autos and dealerships, right? And we're going to talk about this dealership issue. How much of an much? amount? A huge amount of Excellent. the money that these car manufacturers make is in uh, fixing and repairing your car. So I don't know if you knew this, but if you drive around, you can find all sorts of auto parts stores that have catchy tunes and stuff like that and commercials and stuff like that. And they're selling you spark plugs and oil changes and filters and all kinds of crap that goes along with your cars, right? And so all of those things Go away with an electric car for the most part, right? You don't need a timing belt. You don't need filter changes. You don't need oxygen sensors and spark plugs. You need other things, but you don't need those specific you things, You need right? so much less maintenance. That's what's one of the beautiful right, right, things right. about the electric car. So you're saying that there is a whole industry based on keeping your cars going that wouldn't exist if they were of an electric-like nature? Right. I'm not saying it. It's... It's being said by people, right? And the conspiracy theory goes this way. If you have an internal combustion engine, it needs lots of spark plugs and it needs timing belts and it needs maintenance. And whether you use petroleum products or whether you use hydrogen products, that basic infrastructure has to stay the same. All those jobs, all that manufacturing, all that stuff. If you wholesale move over to electric cars, you need a fraction of that infrastructure because they just don't need that much maintenance and upkeep. And so there are powerful forces at work that do not want to change the status quo. That is the point. There's some legitimate arguments there. There's a lot of industry that's going to be affected if we move wholesale to electric cars. But here is Tom's example of why we've got to move past that. There were a lot of horses. Do you know how many horses uh, that existed in 1905, right around the time that the automobile was starting to be mass produced? How many horses were in the United States in 1905 at about the time when uh, the mass production of cars was occurring? That is the question, yes. Thank you. There were one million horses. I can even name them. That is incorrect. That is a number that is incredibly low. As there were five million horses in the United and States. Also incredibly low. Well, how many were there? 22 million horses and mules in America in 1905. That's according to some horse census. I don't know who took this horse census. I think it may have been Mr. Ed, but I'm not sure. Yeah, well, he's bilingual. Yeah. Right, right, right. The reason I bring this up is about the Please. disruption, yes. about all of the yeah, – sig- I'm sorry, yeah. right? About the, I'm not supposed to say that word, but it's about the disruption of, of losing all of these people who are servicing cars, people who service 22 million horses, i.e. the blacksmith. I don't know if you've driven around town and know where there's a blacksmith, but all the ones that I know, they make knives, not horseshoes. 
it's a different kind of. How situation. many horses are there now? Now, well, I don't know how many there are now. Uh, I think there's well, a few. This is really but, takes but, away no, 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 the whole no, no, point. No. But in no, it doesn't. But in 1960, there were only three million horses. Right, so 1960, which you could say like the 50s, the 40s, the 50s, the 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 60s were like the heyday of automobile manufacturing. Right, the 57 Chevy Bel Air, the Corvettes, the Thunderbirds, all these amazing iconic vehicles, right, were were in full production and force, and people were in love with them, and they were ripping out rail lines all over L.A. in these times. Three million horses and Twice as many cars in 1960 were produced, 6 million. So things change. We don't have – you know another thing that we don't have anymore? Brevity. Ice boxes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That, that hurt. Ice boxes, right? Another thing, right? Another thing, refrigerators replaced the ice box. Where are all the ice delivery guys now? They don't exist. I work for Uber. All of these mechanics will eventually get a new job. So again – no hydrogen, people. Buy electric. Don't support hydrogen. That's my rant. So uh, let me try and summarize this rant. I'm sorry. So you're saying that there are these enormous forces to keep the internal combustion engine, whether you use gasoline or whether you use hydrogen in an internal combustion engine. There's all these forces that are saying, well, you know, we've got to build spark plugs and stuff because, boy, what do we do? If you follow that logic, you don't get out of the Iron Age. That is correct. You have to allow these things to develop. There'll be new things to do, building solar panels, building electric engines, doing something else. Um also said, suggested that hydrogen cars are basically just another form of internal combustion engine. You just use hydrogen as the fuel instead of petroleum gas. But in fact, that's not the full story. It turns out you can use hydrogen as sort of an internal combustion engine fuel, or you can use it as a fuel cell. They use the hydrogen and the oxygen and they bring it together and they produce electricity and then they run an electric motor. And in fact, you can do it both ways. I didn't know this. Hydrogen can be used as an internal combustion engine, just as a fuel, compressed gas, boom, stick it in there, boom, blow, Mm -hmm. up and down. Or it can be used as a fuel cell. So hydrogen cars can be electric cars because they're using the hydrogen as a fuel to produce electricity. Or hydrogen cars can be internal combustion engines. Hydrogen goes both ways. Wow. So explain that to me then. So if – because I don't really know what the hell you're talking about right now because as you know, not an engineer. So – but it doesn't change the economics of it or the miles per gallon of if you're using hydrogen as a a combustion fuel – or you're using it as a fuel cell. That means it's a – is it a chemical reaction with the hydrogen and something else a Hydrogen inside? and the oxygen comes together in a magic fuel cell. I'll okay. say fuel cell because I don't know what it is. Okay. And that reaction produces a few extra electrons which then go to your electric motor. If you do a Google search, if you're interested in this, go to howstuffworks.com and there is an expert there talking about fuel cells and some of the difficulties of fuel cells. And it's sort of as we've said – that uh, the fuel cells right now, hydrogen is the source that's used most of the time. It doesn't have to be, but that's the source that's used most of the time. That fuel, that hydrogen comes from fossil fuels, and so you're not really getting a net gain in terms of carbon emitted into the universe or into the atmosphere in this case. And also one of the other things he points out is that these fuel cells in cars are currently pretty big. So the motor, the engine, the fuel cell itself that's now going to make the electrons that drives the electric motor 
are quite large. One of the really great things about the Tesla is you've got these electric motors that are small that are down on the wheels, freeing up all this room in the front and the back of the car. So that's another ding for the hydrogen fuel cell as it stands right now. Expensive. Uh, the fuel doesn't really reduce carbon emissions. And the thing itself is big and complicated. Mm, more dings to the old hydrogen fuel cell. So the new hydrogen-based uh, car from Toyota, and I don't know how to pronounce this. I think it's um, Mirai. Mirai. We'll say Mirai. The Toyota Mirai is um, a hydrogen fuel cell. It's not an internal combustion engine. There's lots of conspiracy theories here. It just really makes no sense, this hydrogen stuff. And if you want to go back and listen to the prior episode, uh, Tom rants extensively about it. Just wanted to state if we can learn one thing, Tom, and we're yep. probably only going to learn one thing each time we do Talking Tesla. And I probably won't even retain most of it. It can go both ways. It can go fuel cell, chemical okay. reaction, or you can blow that crap up. I recently had the opportunity to do an interview with a guy called Eric Bergeson. He's an industrial design guy. He came out with this pretty radical statement about autonomous vehicles. Vehicle is going to do to the car what the car did to the horse. Say what? It's going to do to the car what the car did to the horse? What did the car do to the horse? Well, the car basically took the horse from the major mode of human transportation in the Western world to something that you did on weekends, uh, if you were a polo player, or if you just like horsies. But you didn't take your horsey to work. You didn't take your horsey to school. You didn't use your horsey at all. And Eric is saying that autonomous vehicles are going to do that to the way we think about cars today. Our cars, the way we use them today, is going to be completely revolutionized by autonomous vehicles. Now he's going to have to back it up. Let's see what he has to say. My background is in physics, and I just recently, a couple years ago, got a degree in industrial design. You know, autonomous technology, it's a disruptive technology that's going to have a huge impact on the human race. Eric was actually an invited speaker at the Tesla Connect conference that Tom and I went to a month or so ago that, um, you know, Tom and Mel's excellent adventure, that thing. Yeah, he spoke there. He was by far the best speaker, in my opinion, of everybody, maybe because the subject matter was so provocative. So I got Eric on the phone to do this interview. We can't reproduce the entire interview here, but let's hit the high points. Eric believes we're at a point where there's these overlapping Venn diagrams of driverless vehicles, electric vehicles, very different shaped vehicles than we have today, and Uber-like technologies, which when they all come together, which is occurring very rapidly and right now, you're going to have a situation where people will not own cars. And the first reason that is true is because what does your car do 96% of the time? What is your car doing 96% of the time? It's not sentient yet. It's not sitting there thinking about the universe and how we got to sort of be here. It's doing... Nothing. Uh, let's be clear about that. 96% of the time my car is doing what? Nothing. At the end of the day, cars are only used 4% of the time on average in America. What Eric is saying is that you get up, you get in your car, you drive 20 miles to work, you get out of your car, the car sits there all day... You get back in your car at the end of the day, you drive home, it sits there all night, rinse and repeat. Maybe you get up on a weekend and you go for a bit of a road trip, but still, on average, 96% of the time, your car is sitting there doing nothing except degenerating slowly over time like you. I know that's a bit harsh, but it is true, trust me, I'm a doctor. Now, the next thing that Eric said is this, that American car manufacturers have to sell cars that do what you need it to do about 99% of the time. They don't sell you the car that you really need most of the time. They have to sell you because you want a car that does everything. And because of that, 
the implications is that even though you only commute to work most of the time and it's a short commute and you don't really need lots of electric charge if you're using an electric car and you don't need 17 seats because it's just you most of the time because on the weekends every now and then you do throw the kids in the car and you do take them to soccer practice you buy an SUV it's between 70 80 percent of the time cars are used with only one person in a personal bag and nothing else um, about again 20 to 30 uh, percent of the time you might have two or more passengers maybe some cargo in it but this is the purchasing dynamic that American consumers are stuck in. Right now, you know, first of all, most people might only choose a new car maybe 10 or 20 times in their entire life right now. So when you choose a car, you choose it and then you're stuck with it for years. But again, it's my belief that that's all going to change. Once you could use vehicles on demand, then what's going to happen is that, you know, in in that world, what's going to happen is that a commuter would choose a new car twice a day instead of twice a decade. So now the consequences of your automotive choice, it's trivial. You're not stuck with your choice for years anymore. Now you're stuck with your choice for 20 minutes until you get to your destination and you release the car. So what that means is that people are going to be freed up to start using vehicles that more directly reflect how how they actually use their cars. And how they actually use their cars is about 75% driving just completely solo with nothing but a personal bag. So let's take us through this magical future. I want to try and paint the picture as you painted it so well for us during the meeting. So I get up in the morning. I'm going to go to work. Let's say I'm 20, 30 minutes away, cup of coffee in hand. I'm in this magical future. I don't have a car that's been sitting there all night doing nothing. So I'm going to go to work. So what do I do? I pick up my app. It's an Uber-like app. And I say driverless car, come take me to work, and I'll get a choice of fast, driverless car that can whip through the traffic. Is that how it's going to be? And I'll just pick that choice and it'll be uh, whatever price. We'll get the pricing in a second. But that's my first thing that's going to happen, right? I would take it a step further in that anything that's a routine habit that you do all the time, you won't even have to pick up your phone after the first time you kind of set set the routine. It's going to know every day you go to work at 7.15, you drive by yourself, you have a briefcase and nothing else. So the car's already going to be out there waiting for you because that's what you do every single day. And the cloud knows that. Same thing at the end of the day. The car is going to be sitting there with your name on it, your reservation. You're going to walk out. It's going to pull up about 10 seconds before you walk out on the curb. You're going to jump in it and go home. Then you're going to get there and it's going to drop you off. Then you release the car. You never have to worry about parking it. You can turn your garage into a gym or a home theater if you want. And then if you're doing something unplanned, for example, Saturday morning you need a car that takes seven people, nine people. Then you just hop on your Uber-like app, and we'll say Uber, there's lots of different ones, but we use Uber because it's the best known. You hop on your Uber-like app and say, I need a seven-passenger minivan to the house, and boom, it comes in five minutes. For any kind of unplanned, non-routine trip, then you are going to have to specifically interact with the system to order what you want. And, you know, population density is going to play a big role here. So right now you can already get an Uber in about, you know, 40 seconds notice in any urban environment. But when the price of Uber comes down, you know, gosh, you know, 95%, which is not at all unreasonable, the market for Uber is going to explode even more than it already has. And when I say Uber, I'm really referring to all ride-sharing companies and future competitors that don't exist yet, obviously. But I'm going to say Uber for shorthand. So what's going to happen is that Uber is going to be servicing uh, suburban and residential markets with the same speed and efficiency as it currently serves urban environments. Now, to be honest... I don't think this is going to work in rural Iowa because there's just not enough population density there to support a fleet dense enough to have that quick of a a response time. But literally, any even just even a residential market, the the vehicles will be dense enough that you'll be able to have something in front of your curb in just a few minutes, if not less. 
And it can be whatever you need. If you need to you know, move a piano that day or you want to take seven people to a basketball game or you want to take your son on a fun drive on a curvy road or, or be driven, then that's, that's all going to be available. Getting our head around these concepts would have been really hard even just a few years ago, even before sort of Uber exploded and took off and now so many of us use that service. So a couple of questions for Eric. First of all, what happens during those high commute times in the morning and in the evening? How do you deal with that situation? We still need a lot of cars for that situation. So first of all, about the time of use issue, this whole transformation where we start using vehicles on demand, and again, transportation becomes a service rather than a product in America, I call that the mobility cloud. So I'm going to use that term, the mobility cloud, from here on out. Now, what's going to happen is that the the mobility cloud is going to be basically like the airline industry is today, where the supply of hardware, the vehicles, is pretty much totally fixed on a short-term basis, but the demand for it is incredibly elastic. Just like, you know, during rush hour, everybody wants a car. At 4 a.m., almost no one wants a car. And what's going to happen is that the pricing structure is going to reflect that just like Uber does today. And of course, no one likes that surge pricing from Uber. But keep in mind, it's, it's a lot because Uber is unnaturally expensive right now because you have to pay for both the vehicle and the driver's time when you use it. Once the overall cost of Uber comes down 90%, obviously, we're not going to grouse so much about, about those prices. We'll get into a little bit why Eric thinks that the price of Uber-like services will drop so much. But the single biggest reason to bring up here is because it's driverless that most of the expense that you're paying for when you have Uber come and drive you to the airport or wherever is not actually the expense of running the car. It's the expense of having a human being in the car. Get rid of the human being, the price plummets. Now, another implication of what goes on here is pretty far-reaching. And that is, right now, there's lots of cars on the road, and we're going to need a lot less cars. That's going to mean, even if we use fossil fuels, a lot less pollution... But it's also going to make the car industry freak out. Right now, we have about a quarter billion cars in America, and they mostly sit around not being used. So all that's going to happen is that all that extra unused stock is going to eventually go away, and it'll take decades for that to happen. So the net number of total vehicles is actually going to go hugely down overall. And obviously, most of them are all going to be used during common times like rush hour. The mobility cloud is actually going to decimate the market for private car sales in America and in every other industrialized nation. And that's because, you know, once people realize they can use Uber cheaper than paying for their own private car, eventually they're going to stop buying, you know, privately buying cars. So just understand that the net number of cars is going to go down in America overall. If we accept this is true, then this has enormous implications for the car industry. We're going to need a fraction of the number of cars that we have today. Therefore, that industry is going to undergo radical change, i.e. it is going to shrink. They have got to be freaking out. I've actually given this this talk at a couple of, um, I'm not going to mention the names, but at a couple of major established automobile manufacturers. And to be perfectly honest, I kind of got laughed out of the room each time. They cannot accept that this is coming. You're talking to people who have spent their entire careers selling SUVs, to consumers. And they simply cannot imagine that, and by by the way, you know, buying an SUV rather than a compact car or or even just a station wagon is a non-rational choice. And we all know it. But that's the business model and it works. And 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 because consumers have been engaging in this kind of non-rational behavior for so long, because we like SUVs. I mean, again, again, I'm a big car enthusiast. I love sports cars and I own a ridiculously impractical, silly sports car because it makes me happy. And they've been able to leverage that for so long. They simply cannot imagine a day when that goes away. And by the way, understandably so, if that's been your entire career. But what they're saying is that 
once we start using vehicles through, through the mobility cloud, the consumer's relationship with the car is going to be depersonalized. Nobody, again, like, hey, people love to drive an expensive European car. I do. Who doesn't? But once it's basically a taxi that you're using rather than your own car that's a reflection of yourself, all of those social kind of nuances that incent people to buy big, nice, beautiful cars, they're all going to be weakened. They're not going to be erased, but they're going to be so weakened that all of that's going to go away. And major car manufacturers cannot accept that. My premise was that most people, a car may be fun and interesting, but when that cost comes down, they are going to move to whatever is the cheapest because they're not that into cars. They're not like gearheads like some people that might be listening to this show. Yeah, I would go further and say that actually for most people, it's not fun and interesting. It's literally just an appliance that they just want to work all the time and never cause them any problems. And if you look at you know, sales rates for, for you know, Honda Accords or Toyota Camrys versus interesting cars, well, that tells you the numbers right there. Like that's consumers vote with their dollars and that tells you what the ratios are. To most people, a car is just an appliance. Eric's now going to take us through some of these costs. What is it really going to cost how are these costs going to come down? Why are they going to come down in this mobility cloud? You know, right now, Uber costs about $1.80 a mile to use, which is quite expensive, again, because you have to rent both the driver's time and the vehicle when you use Uber. If you imagine an autonomous vehicle being used in the manner of a taxi cab and you make reasonable assumptions about, you know, the infrastructure required to support them, you know, how much they would cost, you know, how many years can you use them, you basically like model it on a taxi cab. Turns out you can do an analysis that shows how expensive Uber and its competitors would be based on how expensive their fleet of autonomous vehicles were. And what I found out is that, like I said, with their human drivers, it's about $1.80 a mile, which is quite expensive. Turns out that's actually equivalent to buying autonomous vehicles that cost $412,000. That's a lot of money, obviously. The technology is still more expensive than that, but it's still in the laboratory and it hasn't been mass produced yet. So it's, it's going to keep getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Now, Uber is about three times as expensive as private car ownership in America. Private car ownership costs about 66 cents a mile to drive, which it turns out, that's, by my calculations, about equivalent to Uber purchasing autonomous vehicles that cost about $160,000. It won't be cost-effective to start doing this until the vehicles get below $412,000, but anytime they're purchasing vehicles cheaper than that, down to $160,000, when they get to $160,000, their service will have dropped by two-thirds in price. So basically what's happening there is that Uber is just getting cheaper, therefore their market is exploding even more than it already has exploded. But again, Uber's market is growing, but otherwise it's business as usual. Things don't really start getting interesting until they can start buying autonomous vehicles that cost less than $160,000. Because at that point, now they're starting to provide service cheaper than it costs to privately operate cars in America. For example, if they could ever buy, ever buy a fleet of autonomous vehicles that cost $75,000, then they'd be able to offer transportation for about two-thirds the price of privately owning vehicles in America. If they could ever buy a $25,000 fleet vehicle, and I know that sounds really cheap right now to, to 2015 years who know anything about how, how expensive autonomous technology is, but stay with me on that one. If they could ever buy a $25,000 fleet vehicle, that would allow them to offer transportation for one-third the price of privately owning cars. If you offer consumers transportation for you know, one-third the price of what it costs to privately use a car, and by the way, it's not just as convenient, it's more convenient because now when you get to work and maybe you work downtown, you don't have to park the car. You don't have to pay for parking. You don't have to spend time looking for it. You just get out of the vehicle and release it and it picks up another, another passenger. The economics of this are impossible to ignore. Consumer choice angle, we could, we could debate and talk about that all day long. But at the end of the day, when the price differential is that extreme, consumers are going to choose it eventually every time. So Eric's making assumptions that are pretty well accepted and we'll put a link to them 
in the show notes. But then what about specifically electric cars? Why electric autonomous vehicles versus internal combustion engines? What additional benefit do you have from having an electric car? So first of all, there are three major disincentives to consumers using electric cars. The first one is the higher purchase price. The second one is the recharging time. And the third one is the limited range of the vehicles. And what's going to happen is that the mobility cloud is going to negate all of those disadvantages. And here's how that's going to happen. So when it comes to purchase price, that's going to become irrelevant because now these vehicles, they're service vehicles. They're like taxi cabs. The purchase price is going to be amortized over tens of thousands of users over the vehicle's life. So a difference in purchase price, that's going to end up being very trivial and not very important. And because the vehicles are doing 70,000 miles a year instead of 13,500 miles a year, now what's important is running costs. And the running costs for an electric vehicle are so much less than they are for a gas vehicle that the electric vehicles are going to be economically superior to the gas vehicles, I mean, almost from day one, really just almost right away. Now, in terms of the other disincentives, the range and the charging time, remember, we're talking about on-demand service vehicles here. So the consumer isn't responsible for any of that. All that is handled by the fleet owner and the fleet manager. So the consumer doesn't even have any exposure to those concerns anymore. As long as you're traveling you know, a distance less than the total range of the vehicle. And once you go outside that, there's, that's actually a whole other conversation that we can have. But um, again, in most driving is you know, commuting, which is not very long in general and well within the range of current battery technology. For longer commutes, let's say the Hyperloop doesn't exist yet. For longer commutes, you'll basically take that car And then you'll plug it in and it'll charge up and then you'll keep going. You probably won't swap a car at that point. You'd have the opportunity to if you wanted to, but you probably wouldn't. Eric also points out that if it's a single passenger car, you won't need such a gigantic battery. You might still get 300 miles or more with efficiencies out of a much smaller battery because you'll have a much smaller car. So your recharge time, instead of being 20, 30, 40 minutes, might be five minutes and you get another 300 miles. So Eric's an industrial design guy and a bit of a visionary. So, Eric, paint us a picture then of what these sort of daily commuter cars could look like if you take away all those constraints. If we know that 70% of the time it's just me and a cup of coffee, how would you design the car in this autonomous future? Sure. It's something that I call a cabin commuter. It's a small, single-occupant, enclosed vehicle. You might think it's like a motorcycle, but it's not. It's, you know, think of it instead as half of a smart car, the passenger half, because of course there's, there's no steering wheel. It'll be very narrow because in the beginning when the world is still full of full-size cars, you want to be able to split lanes like a motorcycle and, and still get home 40% faster. So again, I think what you're going to have is you're going to see appear a new automotive architecture that holds only a single person. It's going to have the footprint about of a motorcycle, but it's going to be taller. You're going to sit in it in a seat that's exactly like a car seat. The user experience is going to be as car-like as possible. There's not going to be any motorcycle control or interfaces anywhere. And if the builders are smart, they're not going to use the word motorcycle anywhere in the marketing of this product either, because you want to appeal to car consumers, not motorcycle operators. So again, I call these cabin commuters. And because 75% of all driving is done with just one person, I think if you let this run for a couple decades, in 25 years, 75% of all the vehicles on the road are going to be small, single occupant vehicles that only hold a single person and a personal bag. Now, one of the big things that you're all thinking about is safety. This is all very interesting. It's all very nice. But this autonomous future will only occur if these cars are incredibly safe. They will, in fact, have to be much safer than humans because we're humans and whenever we hear about an autonomous car crash, we're going to say, see, the robots, they're not so smart. In the next episode, we'll actually go over that in a little bit of detail. But here's the summary. The best minds on this, whether it be from Google, 
whether it be from Tesla, whether it be from a range of other people who are working on autonomous vehicles, they believe and have increasing evidence for the fact that autonomous driving vehicles will not only be as good, as smart as human beings, and not even a factor of 10 better, but potentially a factor of 1,000 times safer than having humans drive the car. At that point, it will become, as Elon Musk has suggested in the past, that maybe driving by humans will not be allowed. It will simply be too dangerous. Controversial. Let's talk about it next episode. Are you going to get are you are you on board with that? Are you would you get rid of both of your cars, the love of driving that you have? This is not happening tomorrow? No. But yes, I would. You would? Okay. I would, I would too, I think. I don't really care. I mean, I like driving my car and it's all fun and good, but I, I see it this I'm in a transitional phase, Tom. Yeah. I'm uh, driving my own car for a while and I'm loving the Tesla and it's good times, but I'm happy for you to start driving me around everywhere. You, the autonomous vehicle, Tom. <laughs> That's me, Autonotom. <laughs> Autonotom. And the other bonus is I'm going to have all that driveway space back at my house. I'm going to put a bocce cord in, yes. probably play a lot more, uh, uh, what do we call that, corn toss game. And, yeah. and all kind, I might even put a front yard pool in. Uh, my driveway? Front yard uh, pool. You live in California. There's no water. You'd have to make a quick No, sample. I'll just bring the water in. I'll desal it. <laughs> It'll be fine. Yeah. Don't worry about it. We're good. Have you enjoyed the show? And we've been talking, 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 tal